Good morning, everyone. I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman from Sinai Temple here in Los Angeles, and uh, welcome to our first episode of this uh, new video, blog, podcast, whatever we want to call it, Rabbi on the Sidelines. We are here to uh, not just talk about sports and not just talk about religion, but to see how the intersection of those two topics come together. Uh, we often think that we can't do both at the same time, that we can't go to synagogue, can't go to church, and also enjoy our favorite sports teams, get on the court, on the field. But hopefully during this, uh, these conversations, you'll be able to see that actually they are very, very closely connected. Um, we are going to meet sports figures from around the country, around the world, connected to the state of Israel, connected to different faiths. And we are very excited that you are joining us here this morning, both on Sinai Temple YouTube, youtube.com slash Sinai Temple Presents, as well as Facebook Live on Sinai Temple. Uh, feel free to share, as I'm about to do right now as well, um, through the Sinai Temple Facebook. And uh, we are going to get started in just one moment and introduce our very special guest. Just give me one moment here. So our first guest this morning is Steve Heider, who's down in Rhode Island right now. But I got to, uh, this is actually very special because this is my first time, I like to say physically, uh, but uh, meeting Steve Heider face to face. Um, a little background, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, as many of you know, and growing up in Syracuse, um, basketball is king. Basketball is what you do. Um, as a son of a rabbi as well, there was nothing scheduled in a synagogue when there was a Syracuse basketball game. doesn't matter how warm or cold it was in Syracuse, you were at the Carrier Dome for a basketball game. And one of those people that brought me the joy of Syracuse basketball was Steve Heider on WSYR Radio. I used to sit with my brother, Ayal of Blessed Memory, in the wheelchair section because he was a quadriplegic. And we would sit just feet away from Steve Heider, Doug Logan, Joe Galuski, all the best voices in that college basketball world. And we never knew each other, but I knew his voice. I would sit with headphones on as a child, imitating him, the famous calls, the alley-oops, all those good things. And fast forward about 20 years um, I saw an article in the Syracuse paper a few years ago that Steve Heider was under the weather, that he had kidney disease, that he was on dialysis. At that moment, I realized I had to reach out. And so I simply sent a Facebook message to my now good friend, Steve Heider. And to my surprise, in minutes, he wrote back. Um, we're going to talk about that journey in a little while. And we're going to get first to this, uh, the beginning of that journey. So Steve, welcome to our uh, first episode of Rabbi on the Sidelines. It's so good to have you. You didn't tell me I was the first guest. Now I have a lot, a lot of pressure. It's great <laughs> well, to be with you, and I appreciate it very much. I know you've uh, been under lots of pressure um, on the sports world, calling literally game-tying, game-winning shots at the Carrier Dome. I've sweated those uh, games as well right behind you, and it's just great to see you. First, how are you doing during this uh, challenging time of the pandemic? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing is that I was – so sick for so many years, for about five years, got the kidney transplant in July of 2019, and then finally get the okay from the doctors that, okay, you're well enough to go out, you know, just be careful, you know, I kind of practiced social distance and hand washing and stuff like that before it became in vogue with the pandemic. Then the pandemic hits, and I find myself in the same quote-unquote jail cell that I've been in before, so 
I'm used to it, but I'm, I'll be quite honest. I'm tired of it. And I'm, I'm no different than anybody else. I mean, everybody's uh, kind of going a little stir crazy, I think. Hopefully with these vaccines getting ramped up, we'll be able to uh, not just look at each other on a screen, but shake hands one day soon as well. Absolutely. Let's go back to the 90s, actually. When I was a kid growing up in upstate New York, Syracuse basketball, winning lots of Big East championships, um, getting to the Final Four, 1996. I was a little young for the 87 uh, Keith Smart shot. Um, but what was your road first to uh, broadcast journalism, number one, and also to uh, Syracuse University and being the voice of the Orange? Well, they kind of tied in together. Uh, I got hired to uh, work in Syracuse as a... Uh, salesman for a company called Justin selling high school rings. And my boss, I met in an odd way, we we're on a plane and uh, he was reading a book by Billy Packer called Hoops. So I said to him, I go, oh, yeah, I read that book, it's pretty good. And he was wearing a championship ring. And I said, uh, oh, what's the ring for? Well, he's a, he was the former head coach at Niagara, Pete Lonergan, who led his team to a upset win over then number one St. John's a few years earlier, retired from coaching, got into the ring business. So he and I hit it off. And by the time the plane landed in Providence, he says to me, how'd you like to come work for me? And I'm thinking like, this guy's out of his mind. He's offering me a job, you know, like after a two hour, you know, hour and a half flight. So long story short, I ended up taking the territory in Syracuse and uh, hated the job. And uh, to be quite honest with you, I wasn't that fond of the weather either because it snowed the first 38 days I was there. Well, and I, I called him up and I said, degrees here right now. I said, Pete, what did you do to me? And he says, well, oh, just go to the carrier dome. Just go. So I found I was, um, I made a sales call on the uh, Syracuse Chiefs baseball team. Nice. And I met John Simone and Tech Simone. And uh, I said to John, I go, hey, you guys got any part-time jobs here during the summer? I'd like to, you know. He says, well, you got a good voice. He said, you know anything about sports? I go, yeah, a little. And he says, um, well, I'm going to be auditioning people for a public address announcer job. So got the job, met Dan Horde, who was then the radio voice of the, um, of the Chiefs. And I said, you know, I'd always kind of wanted to be a sportscaster, but I didn't know how to pursue it. So Dan was very instrumental in telling me what to do. I took a class at OCC, even though I already had my bachelor's degree, went to Onondaga Community College. There was a great man there, teacher named Vinny Spatafora. And now I'm 25, 26 at the time. And all the other kids in the class are freshmen. They're like 18, 19. So part of the class was Vinny would broadcast games on a little station in Oneida, New York. <laughs> so he'd say, all right, well, I'm doing basketball games on Friday night, Saturday afternoon. Who wants to do it? Nobody would raise their hand. I'll do it. I got a football game on Friday night. Who wants to do it? So I, I got so much experience in that one semester and um, quit my sales job, took a job at a little radio station down in Cortland, WKRT, worked there for about six months, got to WHEN in Syracuse, worked there for about six months. And luckily for me, WSYR stole me away. And I was there for 10 years as the sports director and uh, ended up with the basketball thing too. And I say lucky for you, but really lucky for us, because like I said, you brought lots of light very dark, cloudy days in central New York. Um, so tell us, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of basketball games, um, Syracuse games, legendary people there, Colin, Billy Owens, John Wallace, all of them. You have a top moment when you said, wow, 
not only am I the sports broadcaster, but I just brought this moment to the world that people can experience that are not there. Well, I'll tell you the truth. I had that feeling more than several times. I mean, I would, I, I would have to pinch myself when I, the schedule would come out and I'd look and I'd go, oh man, we're going to Maui this year. Oh, we're going to Anchorage this year. We're going to San Juan. Oh, we're going to play at Pauley Pavilion. We're going to play at the Thomas and Mack Center. We're going to play in Arizona. I was getting paid to do what I, what I loved and going on trips that people paid big bucks to go on. So, you know, I go to the Fiesta Bowl and, you know, just went to the Maui Classic and the Rainbow Classic. And it was just um, beyond my wildest dreams. The game that will always stand out in my mind, even though we lost, was the 1996 championship game to Kentucky. Now, that was, a, that was a team that was led by John Wallace and Lazaro Sims, Todd Bergen, Otis Hill, Jason Sapola. And I was very close with that group of guys. And, um, you know, really, Syracuse had no business being in the arena with that Kentucky team. That Wildcat team had nine men go on to play in the NBA. John played in the NBA. Yeah, it was, it was unbelievable. And we only lost by, I think, nine points, 76 to 67 or something like that. I'm not great keeping track of numbers and things like that, and I get my years confused sometimes. But I'm, I'm more of a people, experience, remembrance type of a guy. And I want to tell you a story about that 96 team that you don't know. Um, and it actually deals with the next topic in terms of faith and inspiration. Um, as you know, and as many of you know, I had a brother, Ayal, of blessed memory, he was a quadriplegic. And that team really adopted him. I was in seventh grade. He was in eighth grade. John Wallace, Otis Hill almost became like pen pals. They jump over your broadcast booth and say hello to him in the wheelchair section every game. And my brother actually painted with his mouth. Um, he, could bear, he couldn't move a limb, but paints beautiful pictures with his mouth and he painted a picture of that team and we were invited to Manly Fieldhouse the day before they went to the Meadowlands you might have even actually been at that practice close practice we go in and coach Beheim stopped the practice he gathered the team around they all and my and we handed out color photos of uh this picture to them and my dad who's also a rabbi he said um you know this you're going to be on national tv playing for the national championship but what you have done for this community and people, the most vulnerable, especially young people, this is what it's all about. And I'll always remember that as a seventh grader. And I remember Donovan McNabb on that team saying, I'm going to give this to my mom. This is amazing. And you look at these people on TV, on radio, but then as you just said, as a people person, you see who they are as human beings. It's much more than a basketball and a hoop and a football and a touchdown and things like that. Are there any stories that you can think of through your time at Syracuse, players, coaches, that you saw moments like that that we didn't hear about on radio, that we didn't see on TV, that you're like, wow, this is what it's about. Well, you know, the, first off, that was a great story. I mean, I had no idea about your, your brother's painting and that. But I can see that those guys, and the, those were the kind of guys that they were, that they would appreciate an effort like that put forth by your brother. Uh, it was funny because you mentioned McNabb, and a lot of people forget that he was on that basketball team, but I'll never forget. His autograph, Donovan McNabb, number five, QB. I have it in the programs. <laughs> he he, uh, he had came off the bench in a game against Georgetown, 10 points and 10 rebounds, and helped us win that game. Um, but he used to 
he had a, an incredible sense of humor. And I don't know if you can see it on the screen, but I have these weird thumbs. They look kind of like toes. Mm -hmm. So a couple of guys picked up on that. They saw it one day and Otis Hill and McNabb and those guys and Todd started making fun of me. Hey, to call me toe thumb and, you know, all these other things. So football season, I'm the sideline reporter for the, for the football team. Syracuse is romping over somebody and I'm standing on the sidelines, you know, just making sure nothing happens. If it does, I go up to Doug and tell him, you know, tell the audience what's going on. McNabb goes to the line of scrimmage. And as he's about to call the play, he glances over at me and goes like this, gives me a thumbs up. Now, I know it was not just to say, like, everything's good. He was doing it to make fun of me in front of 50,000, 30,000, whatever, 50,000 people who had no idea what he was doing. I was the only one who knew. Those are little funny things that, you know, you remember and, and just, uh, you know, good memories that no, I don't think I've ever told that story before, you know. I don't know, working with Coach Beheim, you know, obviously the Jim and Julie Beheim Foundation, millions of dollars, coaches versus cancer. Um, what are those type of stories that you saw? You know, people obviously in the media say, he's, you know, all over the refs and, you know, he's always yelling at the players, never find a compliment. I've personally seen amazing acts of kindness from him. What are some that you have seen as well that you can share with us? Well, he, you know, you'll never get me to say a bad word about Coach Bayon. He is not a huggy kind of guy, warm and fuzzy kind of guy, which I think anybody who's ever seen him on TV with, or met him in person knows that. But he is his most kind, generous. He's a good man. Mm -hmm. And uh, outside, aside from being an outstanding basketball coach, um, we used to, uh, for 10 years together, he and I did the call-in show on uh, WSYR. Uh, we did his TV show, excuse me, on uh, Channel 68, the Fox affiliate in Syracuse. And um, so we get to know each other pretty well. And he would get on my case about things. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I've been at that point, whatever it was, five years, six years, eight years, 10 years. He still doesn't trust me. And so I eventually ended up getting fired from, from WSYR because we lost the broadcast rights. And I was in the sports information director's office, Pete Moore, at the at Syracuse University the day after. And um, coach walked by and he did a double take and he comes in and he puts his arm around me. He goes, what happened? And I said, well, we lost the broadcast rights. They can't pay me. And so I'm out on the streets, coach. He goes, well, let me tell you. He says, our coaches trusted you. Our kids liked you. I want to thank you for all you did for our program. Nice, nice. So after 10 years of not really saying one positive thing, that that meant the world. I mean, it, it meant a lot. And since then, he's done other things that have, you know, just made me, it affirmed the kind of person he really is. Let's talk about storytelling. You said you're not about the stats, you're about the people. And actually, same here. Actually, rabbis are often about the stats. Rabbis ask rabbis, how many people did you have in your services this week, right? And we always try to one-up each other. Yeah. It really is about the people. And uh, what does it mean to be a storyteller? And like you said, see, never see a fan, right? We never met each other. You never knew who I was until I actually reached out to you. Yeah. But knowing that on the other side of that microphone, at the other side of that headset, you had people making their day, sometimes um, not making their day based on the win or loss. But what does it mean to tell a story for somebody? 
Well, I'll tell you what, what, what my objective was when I first started in Syracuse, I knew the diehard fans were going to be listening. If you're a sports fan, you're going to be, you're going to be there. My objective was to try to draw in the marginal person, the person who may have never, eh, I don't listen to a Syracuse game. I, that, that, that was my target audience. And if I could do it through humor, if I could do it through storytelling, uh, getting to know, I mean, I was never a coach or a, or a, you know, player past, you know, CYO level, things like that. But if I could do it through my knowledge of the kids and telling stories about them, maybe basketball related, but more often than not, not sports related football, you know, talk about Donovan McNabb and the relationship he had with his mom or, or talking about Lawrence Moten. Um, you know, th those were the things that I would like to listen to, even as a diehard fan. And uh, it seemed to work. Mm -hmm. Nice. Let's fast forward a couple of years, obviously, leaving WSYR. Um, I'm going to skip the Pawtucket Red Sox right now, mostly because I never liked that team based on being a Syracuse Chiefs fan. Uh, so I can't even imagine what it was like being a Pawtucket I was with Red the Chiefs for three years. Don't forget that. 97, 98, 99. That was also great gang who would go there often to first MacArthur Stadium and to um, whatever the name started to become. PSC um, with Hitter. Yeah, exactly. Um, but let's go actually to sort of your spiritual aspects. Um, you said you were sick for five years. Maybe just share a little about how you realized that you had kidney disease and uh, first what that meant to you or what that felt like when you heard those, that, 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 those breaking news. Well, it was, um, it was my last season with the Paw Sox, which was 2012. And I really started not feeling great. And um didn't know why. I uh, went to the doctor after the season was over, got a physical. Uh, you know, you should lose some weight. You should do this. You should do that. So I tried to do it all, you know, everything they told me to do. Still wasn't feeling good. So he said, I'm going to refer you to a uh, nephrologist, which I didn't know even what that was at the time. It's a kidney specialist. Uh, his name was, or his name is Joe Romanello. He's out at South County Hospital here in, in Wakefield, Rhode Island. Um, he said, I don't think it's anything too serious. He said, uh, we're going to give you an injection, you know, maybe once a month, try to get your levels regulated. So that worked for a few months. Then it got to every two weeks and that worked for a few months. And then all of a sudden we're getting the shot every week. And, he, and then one day I came in and he said, listen, I hate to tell you this. He says, but I think you're going to need to go on dialysis. So at that point, I kind of already had the sense that that was going to happen but um, nothing prepares you for being tethered to that chair. I, was, I would go Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I'd be in that chair from 10.30 till about 3 o'clock. And um, just physically and mentally and emotionally exhausting. Uh, I would get home at you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock, whatever, have a bite to eat and then I'd fall asleep and I'd have to set the alarm. So I wouldn't sleep till like 10 because then that would mess up my whole night's sleep. And, um, I got, um, the, the big thing that I got out of it was you, uh, come to terms as best you can. 
and I, you know, young man in my, my mid early fifties at the time, uh, you come to terms with your mortality. You think like, well, I don't even know if I'll be here next year. And the way I was feeling, I, there were days when I really didn't think I'd still be around. So uh, I was blessed that uh, a gentleman by the name of Kevin McNamara, who's a Syracuse University graduate, wrote for the Providence Journal, did a story on me, told my story, told my plight. And um, well, first I'd, I'd sit to my doctor, I go, what do you think? And he goes, and I, I can't say since we're on Sinai Temple, uh, you know, but he, he goes, what are you, some kind of a blank? And I said, uh, what, what are you talking about? He goes, well, first off, you're gonna raise awareness for other people who need organ transplants. Secondly, he says, I guarantee you, you'll have a donor within a month. Mm-hmm. And I said, doc, you've never steered me wrong before. I don't believe you, but I'll go ahead. And then, so I did the story. The very next day, my cousin calls me and she says, uh, hey, do you still need a donor? And I said, yeah. She goes, I didn't even know you were sick. I said, well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody, which I've come to find out that that was a big mistake because mm-hmm. the minute I did tell people, they came out of the woodwork to try to... Uh, Your story right there. Oh, okay, yeah. They came out of the woodwork to try to, uh, to help whether it was um, a GoFundMe page set up by my friends to have uh, help my, my medical costs or uh, just letters of support. I got a beautiful note from you. Um, it was kind of like, uh, like my George Bailey moment in It's a Wonderful Life. At the end of the movie, he's standing behind that table and all the people are coming in to save him from the $8,000 that Uncle Billy lost. Mm-hmm. And he didn't realize what an impact he had had on people over the years. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was the same way. I never, I was just being myself. Somebody wanted tickets, I get them tickets. Somebody who was kid wanted to meet a player. I would do my best to get him down on the field with me. And it was just little things that I knew would have meant a lot to me when I was a kid. I should have caught you 30 years ago. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And actually, that's during the time that I reached out as well when I saw that article. And I wrote you a Facebook message. Like I said, you wrote back. And I just want to read to you what actually you wrote back to me. You said, thanks for your touching letter and generous thoughts. My years in Syracuse are very happy. I wish I had met you and your brother back then. I've been overwhelmed and humbled by people's response to my dilemma. It's incredible to realize that I had an impact on people. It's more of a legacy than I could have imagined. And now this this is the line. This is before the transplant. You wrote, keep me in your thoughts and I will be grateful. Thanks for reaching out, Steve. That was before. Now go to the after um, and what does that feel like and what, what's, what's the difference? And I just want to say actually in our tradition and in the Christian tradition as well, Psalm 23, we say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no harm for you, God, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And usually your staff means like the pole. There's a beautiful interpretation that says, actually, you're, you're telling us right now, the staff that come for me are all those people that you never knew in your life. Yeah. All, of, all those years that you signed on live, that you were comforting so many people right before they, they have these sort of last wishes. It is to meet that sports star, to see a game, et cetera. And you fulfilled those dreams. And now here you are on the other side and your staff and your rod, they were comforting you. So what did that look like after the successful surgery? Well, I'll I'll be honest. I'm more used to and more comfortable in the role of being the guy 
who's doing something for someone else. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm not gracious or grateful, but I had a really hard time accepting that I was worthy of all the insanely generous gestures and things, things like that. I wake up every day now and I just kind of smile before I, I mean, when I, when I was sick, I would, I put my feet on the floor and I was already tired, you know, getting out of bed. Now I, you know, I go to the gym, I ride the bike 10 miles a day. Um, It's such a gift to have your life back. And that's not a, you know, that's not hyperbole. That's like legit. I mean, it's my, I got my life back. I feel good enough to do almost anything. You know, I got to realize my limitations though, physically, because if I go after I go to the gym five or six days in a row, I start to, and my mother looked at me the other day. She goes, what are you trying to train for the Olympics or something? I said, no, nah. she goes, take a day off. I said, eh, we're probably right. There's actually a prayer that we say every morning in Hebrew. It says, means, thank you, God, before me. That has restored my soul to life. And you just said every day you wake up in the morning and you may not say those words exactly, but you feel that. And I think yeah. we all, like, especially in this time, every single day, like when hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives in the last year here in LA County, it's almost 300 people a day right now losing their lives. Those are not light words that we say. And I think your story really has a, a has impact in that. After um, you had that transplant, there was a follow-up article in Syracuse, I believe, by Mike Waters. And that's where I was shocked when you actually quoted me saying there was even a rabbi in Los Angeles that reached out and prayed for me. Um, we talked about the power of prayer. Were there moments that you prayed, whether it's to God, to something, that is, and you felt that power of prayer from all around the world? I will never, ever discount the power of prayer. Because even if, if half the people that said they were praying for me did, mm-hmm. I mean, it's got, there's got to be something to it. I mean, I'm not a particularly religious guy. Uh, I've, I got my start, if you will, in Catholic school. And that turned me off so badly from the religion. Um, I would, we had these nuns and you'd have like an eraser mark on your paper, or you'd be talking to the kid next to you. And they'd tell you, you know, you're going to go to hell. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm only six years old. What did I do? You know? And I knew you know, in my mind, in my in a kid's mind, I knew that it couldn't be right. And I and it kind of got me thinking early about if this is what religion is, um, you know, you can count me out. I tried over the years to, you know, go to church and, and things like that. And um I I think really what I've tried to do is to be I feel like I'm on a dating website when I use this term, but I'm more spiritual rather than religious. It's so uh, funny that you say that because so many people come to in my office and many rabbis' office and actually preachers, uh, clergy around the country, world, and they say those lines exactly. And it's so interesting to hear from somebody from a different faith. So many people in our own congregation, rabbi, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And then I say, define religious they say, well, I do this, I do this, I wake up in the morning, I say, thank God for my soul. And I say, oh my gosh, you're the most religious person I've ever 
spoken to and then they say this person says i'm not spiritual i'm only religious and they tell me oh well they had this you know spiritual mind and how they spiritual practices and it's so interesting how those how those terms are defined um and i also want to say though um i've been very blessed um, here in los angeles to work with different clergy of different faith including catholic priests uh, a couple of miles away and the work we do together he calls it covenant work right now we're helping feed the homeless in la it's a growing population um but I think the covenant work is the really the most important that bonds doesn't matter what faith you are, but some type of thing above that is uh, looking out over all of us as well. You know, last year it was Yom Kippur, it's the holiest day for the Jewish community and rabbis have to decide of what to uh, speak about to their community. And I spoke about angels and uh, it was during the year that I had the opportunity to meet you virtually. And I had this urge to share our story together I just want to read you what I wrote that day that I know you also heard about as well. Um, I wrote this. First, you wrote to me in that article. You said, can you imagine anyone in the right mind trying to be me? He told my story at his temple and they offered up all sorts of prayers. And this is what I wrote for that night. A simple act that we know in our hearts will make a difference. That will allow us to go into our new year with a pure heart, a pure soul and the wings of angels. That sermon was called the tenth of a second and was about the things that if we don't do, we never have that opportunity again. And I explained that tenth of a second that I skimmed that article and I said, I got, I don't know what compelled me to do it. Maybe it was a higher plane something, but I wrote that simple Facebook message. And from then, like we say, it's history. Uh, by the way, I, there was a lot of praying for me during a lot of your calls at the you know last seconds of the game. I don't know if those prayers worked, but hopefully the other ones for kidney transplants did. But, yeah, with Syracuse uh, won most often, so I guess they, uh, yeah. I guess some of them worked. That is true. But that sermon, I think, was a, it, was, it was an important point for me, that we have so many different angels who are literally staring us in the face, and we just have to notice them. We have to realize that they are what they are, that they are angels within our midst. Um, and, uh, I'll tell you, you know, that's one thing really that has changed me by by the outpouring of of goodwill from everyone is it's made me a better person um you know um, obviously i'm sure you know i don't know if you know him personally but jimmy lee the former syracuse basketball player yesterday his cancer yeah great story in the paper so i I texted mike waters who wrote the story and i said hey if you don't think jimmy would mind send me his um phone number i'd like to like to just say hi to him I got on the phone with Jimmy and it was like we had never been apart. And and we talked for about a half an hour. And uh, in fact, it was at the UCLA Medical Center that uh, he said that that's his favorite school now and his favorite because they, they saved his life. Wow. He lives out here in L.A.? No, he was there visiting his daughter. Uh, his daughter and her husband both work in um, in TV in some realm. And um, he wow. was out there for a visit with uh, with his wife and started feeling ill and he thought it was his back from basketball. Man, he, man, he was a great, great player. Sir. He was an all-Final Four guy back in 75, 76. So to uh, conclude our program this morning, first of all, thank you. This has been amazing. Um, I know our conversations won't stop uh, off the screen, and we're looking forward to uh, you know many more conversations as well. Um, I think it's amazing how this sports world and faith world come together. Um, obviously, it was through an illness, but... Um, like you said, never taking for granted, literally the breaths that we take each and every moment. 
Um, and it's, I think, amazing how our paths have crossed my own childhood and impacted so much and so many of my friends. By the way, that 96 game in the, the Final Four, that was the only day of the year that our seventh grade English teacher did not um, did not allow us to do our homework because you have to go home and watch that game. The snowy, snowy April in uh, Syracuse. We had a that was such a great time with uh, Gracie Varsity. Remember, pizza. remember the uh, pep rally down at City Hall and all the uh, the rap group Blase Blase. The Cuses in the house. I mean that whole. I mean it was just a really fun. I was glad to be a small part of it. And uh, just maybe one concluding question. How do you see the sports world, right? I think they've taken a lot of stances. Um, I'm not going to get into polit politics right now, but different stances in terms of making a difference in the world. I know we talked about how religion and sports have come together, but how do you see sports as actually being a positive impact in the world uh, going forward, especially with the use of social media and just it's out there. Like I said before, you were the connection to so many people because games weren't televised, like you were it. Now it's everywhere. Yeah. What do you see for sports going forward that uh, can, can can make this world a little better place tomorrow than it is today? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing, the first step in the right direction was when we got sports back. That mm -hmm. was a hard few months when, you know, the March Madness was canceled and everything. You know, it was very strange for me to watch the Masters being played in November. And, you know, everything was all out of, all out of whack. So, I, and I do think it has healing powers, uh, it, whether it draws us together or, or, you know, a Red Sox fan and a Yankees fan continues to the, create the divide, it's what we're used to. And I got a lot of friends who are Yankees fans, but we've learned over the years how we can not agree, but that doesn't mean we hate each other, you know? And that's the thing that really bugs me so much about the world and the way it is today everyone seems to be so unforgiving. I think a great microcosm of that was just uh, a couple of days ago when Syracuse played Georgetown and all this John Thompson, Jim Beheim stories came out. Yeah. Uh, that was fantastic. Actually, um, my dad, when he was a rabbi in Syracuse, used to have a dinner every year at his synagogue and it was called the Citizen of the Year Dinner. And he decided uh, early 2000s to honor Coach John Thompson. And the standard at Syracuse.com ripped them apart. And not only did we honor John Thompson, but Jim Beheim introduced him as the honoree. Wow. And he basically said that, that yeah, we were enemies on the court. And actually what's interesting to me right now, based on the social distancing, is that players and coaches don't shake hands at the end of the game out of necessity. It's really hard to just watch him like wave and walk off the court realizing like, you know, the embraces that they used to have um, just set, uh, 10 months ago. Um, yeah. So I think it's a beautiful microcosm in a macro world that, yeah, you can have these disagreements on the court, but at the end of the day, we're human beings, we're souls of God above and uh, we're put on this earth to uh, really have a purpose. And as you do so well to tell a story. So I want to thank you, Steve, from a, uh, Formerly WSYR, Pawtucket Red Sox. Um, if you're watching, please join us on Wednesday mornings, 10 a.m. Pacific time, 1 p.m. Eastern time, the Rabbi on the Sidelines, as we get to uh, meet many amazing, amazing figures in the sports world that also have inspiring stories of faith. Steve, be well and have a great day and be safe as well, my friend. Hey, I can't thank you enough for having me on. I really appreciate it. You'll never know. And again, thank you so much for your reaching out. And I'll, I'll tell you the truth, man. I love you. I really do. Same here. Thanks so much. Have a great day, everybody.